Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 26th of July, and I'm Govind Raj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes foreign investors have pumped in $15 billion net this year. IMF ups growth forecasts. In an unusual step, a venture fund says it will work with the government to uphold shareholder interests in EdTech company Baiju. Are IT companies geared to deliver the guidance they promise? India's film exhibition industry braces for a perfect storm as Hollywood pipeline is set to slow down and Bollywood films aren't doing that well. And a great explanation of how artificial intelligence works and why it could change our lives. This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. Foreign investors are pumping in money. Foreign investors will continue to pour money into Indian stocks, driving indices to new highs in an extended bull market, according to HSBC Holdings, quoted by Bloomberg. Indian markets have seen around $15 billion in net foreign inflow this year, and another $2 billion it would erase last year's record outflow, according to Bloomberg data. Thanks to which, the Sensex, as we've been quite breathlessly recording in the core report, is up 15% from a March low, doing much better than many emerging markets. Overseas investors are now poised to be net buyers of Indian stocks for the fifth consecutive month, and this is the longest streak of inflows since March 2021. While domestic investors have become formidable in deciding the market's direction, foreigners remain a big driver, says Bloomberg. This story, of course, goes back to the early 1990s when we began counting or recording foreign portfolio investment into the country and also noting the ups in the Sensex or the indices when foreign flows would suddenly start. So if you want to know why, at least right now, here is a fresh one. This is from the IMF, which has raised the current year growth forecast for India by 20 basis points to 6.1%, citing the country's stronger than expected growth momentum in the March quarter of this year. Growth in India is projected at 6.1% in 2023, a 0.2 percentage point upward revision compared with the April projection, reflecting momentum from stronger than expected growth in the fourth quarter of 22 as a result of a stronger domestic investment, said the IMF in its update to its World Economic Outlook released earlier in April. Meanwhile, in a move that will surely be seen as positive by markets and reflecting considerable corporate confidence, engineering major LNT or Lassen Tubro announced a 10,000 crore rupee buyback program through the tender offer route. The buyback would be done at a maximum price of 3,000 per share and will involve about 33 million shares or 2.4% of the fully paid up equity share capital. And this price is at a premium of 17% from its current levels. Meanwhile, the Sensex ended the day with a 29-point drop at 66,356. The Nifty, though, ended 8 points higher at 19,680. So all in all, a calm day at the markets. It wasn't so calm elsewhere, though. VC Fund says it will work with the government to safeguard Baiju's investor interests. So the police are at the door. What do you do? Bury the body first and open the door? Or open the door and say you will cooperate fully in the investigation that follows. Venture Investor Process, which calls itself a global consumer internet group and one of the largest technology investors and operators in the world, did something to this effect when it announced that it would collaborate with government authorities to safeguard the long-term interests of Baiju's and its stakeholders. Now, knowing how these statements would have gone back and forth between, among, and around lawyers and general counsels, I would think the words are quite carefully chosen. 
Process also said as a shareholder, it would continue to assert its rights and collaborate with other shareholders, all of whose representatives quit together with Process from Baiju's board. To back up a little, Auditor Deloitte and three board directors representing close to $5 billion in investments quit from the board, leaving everything in the hands of the founders. An advisory board has taken over at Baiju's with Mohandas Pai, ex-Infosys CFO and now a venture investor, and Rajneesh Kumar, a former State Bank of India chairman, leading it. Their role, given their limited clout, at least on paper, is not very clear to me as yet. Process also explained why its representative resigned from Baiju's board, saying the decision to exit was taken after it became clear that the executive leadership at the edtech firm regularly disregarded advice and recommendations relating to strategic, operational, legal, and corporate governance matters. That is a lot. The decision for our director to step down from the Baiju's board was taken after it became clear that he was unable to fulfill his fiduciary duty to serve the long-term interests of the company and its stakeholders, a statement from Process said. The firm holds less than 10% of Baiju's total stake and recently marked down that valuation of the investment. Of course, I meant dead bodies and cops figuratively and not literally, and a reference to the financial and governance mess, which has become a good example of how not to run a company, perhaps world over. Meanwhile, reports coming in via the Economic Times say Baiju's has shuttered some of its office in Gurugram or Gurgaon and Bangalore and is currently in the process of shutting down an office in Noida. Many employees were apparently given the option to relocate to Bangalore or sit at Baiju's tuition centers, which double up as offices and tuition centers, of which there are 302 such centers across India, which in some senses seems to be where Baiju's began its big digital journey. Our company is geared to meet the guidance they promise to investors. Last week, IT stocks went into a bit of a tizzy after Infosys put out a guidance saying it was likely to report lower revenues for the year in contrast to what was expected. This caused, though there were other factors, the markets to pause after a happy, jolly bull run lasting weeks. This was a bombshell, said some. Others said it was a root shock. Why they were reacting so dramatically to something that was in the offing with the writing on the wall, so to speak, is not very clear to me. But markets are markets and one should not question them, at least beyond a point as I've learned over the years. The top five Indian IT companies by market capitalization have seen their sequential revenue growth in dollar terms as between close to minus 3% and 1%. Very different from the near high single digit and double digit growth seen last year, according to the Economic Times. Kotak Institutional Equity said a slowdown is industry-wide and that total contract value or TCV wins are not translating into revenues due to tardy pace of decision-making, discretionary spending cuts and delay in ramp-ups. Infosys has taken the upfront hit in its guidance. So you get the picture. By the way, the dust may have settled a little bit, but the stocks have not. Infosys is still quoting lower after the hammering it took last week. The issue, as I could see, is twofold. Giving guidance obviously means a predictable understanding of how extremely unpredictable a market environment is or becoming. If not that, it reflects confidence in sales success, come what may. Now, this can apply to any company in any environment, give or take. As businesses go, the sense of growth and confidence of growth is important to investors and managements and CEOs obviously feel under pressure to project the same and deliver. But are their processes equally robust to meet such demands of growth and deal flow, particularly when they have guidances out and more so when things are not going so well? Or put more simply, can I realistically deliver what I'm promising or the other way, 
what can I promise knowing what I'm likely to deliver? For example, if things are going well and clients are in abundance, a company might adjust or book revenue up or down a little to meet its targets for the year and then hold over some part, in consultation with clients, of course. Things change when things are not going well and revenue shrinks. And you have the equivalent of dealers sending you back stock you dumped on them at the end of the year to show higher dispatches because dealers are now not sure about customers. There are, of course, not any simple answers. But there is some data to go by and there's intuition and there's confidence. I spoke with Rahul Jain, Vice President Research at Dolat Capital, and who tracks the IT sector and began by asking him how he was seeing IT stocks now that matters had settled a little. See, my sense is that if you look at the two results, not just this result of Infosys, this is a miss on guidance and the outlook, but the previous one was miss uh, both from a disappointing from a growth guidance as well as what they reported in the Q4 uh, by a big margin. So that clearly tells you that what is the kind of uh, environment we are into. That means there's a lot of challenges happening around the client environment. And whatever they are committing in terms of deals may not fructify in the same time frame which they were initially committing you to. And that is what forces companies to think about their revenue expectations from those companies in a certain way. But eventually it may not flow out the way it was initially designed just a few months back. So that tells you the kind of environment we are into. Now, what does that reflect into other companies? If I look at the 10, 12 companies that I follow, out of that, only TechMindra is yet to report. Barring CoForge and a little bit on LTTS, there's no other company which has reported better than what we were thinking. Are they reporting any lead indicator which also tells us that, okay, things will be better from here? So I think we are in challenging situation. It would be too premature to call it that the pain is behind or something. And we may have to live with a little bit of more volatility even going ahead. Got it. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, this is a sort of flip question. What if Infosys was not giving guidance? How would, would you think the market would have uh, read it differently or could it have read it, read it differently? Yeah, I think uh, that's a good question because if you look at how TCS behaved through the year versus how Infosys uh, behaved as a stock, that itself tells you the answer, right? So even if we go by the current guidance and let's assume Infosys achieves the top end of it, which is 3.5%, I think in my opinion, TCS may also go for 5% this year. So it's not like they are very different in terms of performance. It's just that if you guide, you set an expectation, people think you're going to do this and then you may surprise positively, negatively. So it's a double-edged sword that way, right? So it gives you a better visibility, right? If you think there's a 4 to 7% while TCS must be reporting like a flat revenue, then you would think like, oh no, Infosys can do 4 to 7 while TCS is reporting a flat number. You know, just to clarify your point, if you see this quarter, TCS was a flat growth, while Infosys was a 1% growth. If you look at this event isolation, Infi did better than TCS in this quarter. Now take out that guidance element from this results, your view of what's the same is very different, right? So, of course, that sets a different tone. Yeah. So, uh, maybe the moral of the story is not to uh, give out guidances since Infosys seems to be the only company that's doing it, right? Or any of the other 12, com 11 companies that you track do it? Yeah, yeah. There are some more who was uh, like HCL started a few years back. LTTS does it. 
your co-force does it. I think uh, there's nothing right or wrong about giving guidance, but uh, if you are really not convinced, maybe your process has to be far more robust. In a good environment, even if you're a little lenient on it, things fall in place and you know you are in the band. But in tough environment, maybe the process has to be far more rigorous than what uh, the process is generally. Yeah, and that's a good point. Okay, last question, uh, Rahul. So as you look ahead, what are you seeing in the next three or four quarters? Uh, as, as I said in the first question itself, you know, it would be very, very, you know, naive to say that we know that this is the environment, this is going to happen. Whether we say it positive, whether we say negative, I don't think it's going to be that easy a year. We have to live with volatility for some more time. And hopefully things are turning for better. If I have to look at this quarter, as I said, LTTS was one company which showed that kind of a hope to me in this quarter. They had a fabulous wins. They are saying all the deals are on time. They are hiring. They gave wage hike in the last quarter. So if you sum up all those three, four factors, everything gives you a positivity. But do you see that in uh, 10 companies or do you see that in five companies? The answer is no. So either people had a weak result or they had a weak order win, either they are guiding weak. So there's some weakness in some form or shape in most of the names. I can say that this is going to be a boring year. There's no point trying to be a seller or buyer into these names. Uh, you can only buy if you are a three-year guy. If you are a one-year guy, I think you should wait for more clarity. It sounds non-actionable, but... That's what our view is. We've been negative on the sector for more 15 months now. And it played out well. Stock corrected very sharply last year. This year they have come back, but fundamentals are not supporting that much why they came back very sharply. And now again, people are in that mode that yes, these are expensive and they are seeing some pain. So I think more action leads to more problem. Let's wait. It sounds boring to be out of action, but maybe internet is a good option to play tech for time being. Or any business, I would say, which are not focused on developed market, because developed market where the pain is. If you are in a business, if you have your customer in Middle East, if you have customer in Southeast Asia, in India, I mean, you're doing good. Look at the software companies. We saw NewGen kept coming up with their uh, number. Fabulous results, 35% growth. There are a host of other companies. So. Just a small clue, not going into too many names. Um, Non-developed market as an end market. If that is a bigger component in your client portfolio, there's a good possibility you will outperform this year and next year. Got it. That's very interesting. And Rahul, thank you so much for joining me and for your insights. Thank you so much. The Perfect Storm. In the last few weeks, there have been several Hollywood blockbusters that have hit cinema screens across India. Tom Cruise's Mission Impossible 7, Oppenheimer and Barbie, to name the biggest ones. Just over the weekend, these films had touched close to 80 crore rupees in ticket sales on the box office. At that point, Mission Impossible itself, which was released earlier, did a total of around 92 crores. So while Hollywood has had a good run of late, Bollywood has not. The bigger concern is that the Hollywood pipeline is going to dry up or thin out substantially because of strikes called by both writers and actors there. The problem on the Indian side is while the pipeline is strong and many movies are going to hit the screens, they are unlikely to do so well. And then there is streaming. So it is to use that movie title, The Perfect Storm, particularly for cinematic exhibition 
and movie halls. So how is this perfect storm going to play out for the rest of the year? I reached out to Komal Nata, well-known film trade analyst and also publisher of Film Information and began by asking him precisely this. Hollywood is actually feeding uh, the Indian box office because Hindi films don't seem to be doing too well. Of course, we had a Pathan early this year and then it was followed by the Kerala story after about uh, five months. These two films have stood the box office in good stead. But if we were to count on Hollywood, it was Mission Impossible. It is now Oppenheimer, Barbie. And they all have come in such quick succession that it almost seems like we are dependent on Hollywood to really make the trade go. Uh, it's a sad reality. And Hollywood in aggregate is only about 6 to 10% of total box office in India, right? Not even 10%. It is about 6 to 8% on the higher side. But uh, suddenly everything seems to be concentrated around Hollywood films, at least as far as the Indian box office is concerned. Because a lot of big budget films, big banner films, big star cast films are flopping, biting the dust. And, you know, they are going totally unsung sort of, you know. It's not even as if they were expected to do 250 crore and they stopped at 200 crore. No, they don't even do 100 crore. So that is the shocking part. What's an example of that? Uh, say something like uh, Satya Prem Ki Katha. One would have thought that after Ul Bulaya 2, Satya Prem Ki Katha would join the 200 crore club. It did not even join the 100 crore club. It did well. I mean, Sajid Dadiadwala made money. But when we are talking of the industry as a whole, of the trade as a whole, where is the expectation of 200 crore and where is the reality of, say, about 80 crore? It doesn't match. You know, in a good year, uh, whether, I mean, maybe you can use a pre-pandemic benchmark. How many hits do you need to, you know, keep the supply, I mean, supply side strong and the whole industry humming or in the industry in the extended sense? At least seven or eight big hits. Uh, or let me put it this way. At least three or four big hits, three or four smaller hits, at least that much. Whereas in the first seven months, what we have had is two blockbusters, that is uh, the Kerala story and Patan. That's all. So what you're saying is you've not seen an, at least another two big hits and you've not seen any of the small hits that you would like to see so far? No, not really. Not really. Okay, but are you looking at financial year or calendar? No, no, I'm looking at the calendar year. So yes, we have five months to go, August, September, October, November, December. And the lineup is good. There's Rocky Orani Ki Prem Kahani, there's Tiger 3, there is... Jawan, there is Dunkey. So all is not lost. But what I'm saying is we should have had at least, at least four big hits, some three or four medium level hits. But those medium level hits never came. Three or four ki jagah, it was only two. So it is an alarming situation. You're saying that these number of hits should have happened in the first six to seven months already? Yes, yes, at least. Because if we are counting, we are saying that seven or eight big hits and medium hits, four should have come in the first half. But that didn't happen. Now, if you were to look downstream, uh, Komal, what is the impact of this when the industry shrinks? And that's what I can see happening because obviously overall revenues are shrinking. What happens? I think the confidence of the trade is shaken, which is why so many people have not been able to start films, which is why a lot of actors are contemplating kya kare, nahi kare, ye banai, wo banai. So I think it is a sorry situation. Uh, the money flow has been affected because once the footfalls don't come at the ticket counters, money is in short supply. And when money is in short supply, nobody feels like spending hugely for a film. Because the question is, if we make with such a huge budget, 
will people come to the cinemas see actually this current crisis is more i would say monetary terms of course it's a crisis but the bigger crisis is there is a feeling that people are probably tired of going to the cinema and ott has come as a huge opposition never imagined everybody kept saying you know maybe these will coexist like television and films for the first time in my 30 odd year career i am saying that probably films may not be the same again because the discussion in households today is about web series not about films they discuss about films when those films come on the web come on the ott platforms that is not a very good situation na for us we used to say are rukirani choroka rajas coming when i think first weekend now they are saying this web series is coming have you seen this the children tell their dad and mom the parents tell their children you know we saw this last night it's very nice you all must see this first all this conversation used to center around films no longer so so that is the biggest tragedy again from a pure monetary side so the ott is obviously also supporting the industry so is that making up for what is being lost potentially on uh, the box office sales where is the balance if any see no doubt the money is coming into the film industry because people are making entertainment content but the platform is changing so while producers actors technicians are having a ball of a time it is the cinema industry so that means the exhibition sector which is in a very panic state of mind because they don't know they are investing so heavily in properties and building cinemas but they don't know the footfalls are quite contrary or quite uh, uh, different from what they thought and therefore invested huge amounts so it's not the end of the entertainment industry it's the end of the exhibition so cinemas per se that is the alarming part and what if any is a silver lining that you see in all this or is there a bright side to all of this uh the only bright side i can see now is that with openheimer and barbie doing so well i can only say that probably let us now sit back and realize that it is our content which is bad which is keeping the people away from the cinemas maybe if we also come with compelling content people will come back to the cinemas so that is the only silver lining because it isn't as if some great oppenheimer of bollywood has flopped some great barbie of bollywood has flopped no our content is also to be blamed only difference is had this been the pre covid era when ott was not so popular we would have said oh it's not good but it has done reasonably well now we say oh it is good but it is not even done reasonably well so you know a good chunk of the audience has actually decided that we go to the cinemas once or twice a year not so regularly with that regularity which was there in the pre covid days that is not it and we are only thinking maybe this is temporary maybe once they get into the mood once they have some great content four five six contents like that maybe they'll again get into the habit of going to the cinemas maybe wishful thinking but that is all that the industry people can do now besides working hard of course <laughs> and producing great content and that's a very logical but uh, still a useful reminder as always to everyone thank you so much komal thanks thank you go the storm in some senses is extending elsewhere a wall street journal dated july 11 said disney under bob iger was exploring strategic options for its star india business including a joint venture or a sale the talks are in the early stages and it's unclear which options if any disney might pursue the wall street journal said Disney paid around 71 billion dollars in 2019 for entertainment assets of 21st Century Fox. At that time, 
Star India was considered one of Fox's crown jewels, and it was an important part of Disney's plan to build out its fledgling streaming business globally. The deal gave Disney the broadcast and streaming rights for IPL cricket matches, as well as dozens of TV channels in several languages and a stake in a production company that makes Bollywood movies. But later, or last year, Disney lost a bidding war for the rights to continue streaming those matches, and revenue from broadcasting those matches on linear TV would not meet the investment that it had put up for the bid. Star's overall revenue for the fiscal year ending September 23 is expected to drop around 20% to slightly less than $2 billion, the Wall Street Journal said, quoting sources. I reached out to media analyst and Business Standard columnist Vanita Kohli Khandekar and began by asking her how she was seeing the current entertainment media landscape right now and more specifically, what could happen to Disney. If it was some other company, I would have said, or why are you doing this? But if it's Disney, I'm not surprised. They've struggled in India for 30 years. They've been here since 1993. They acquired the second largest media company in this country in 2018 globally as part of the Fox deal. In five years, they haven't managed to do anything with it. They're very American in their outlook. That's my big issue with it. From whatever I understand, Disney treats markets outside of the US as colonies. So if it's not contributing to top line, bottom line, it's of no interest. But you have to invest in the market, understand it. Why Star so successful in India? Fox and News Corp spent time. They took nine years to crack the market to do a KBC and managed to crack it. Disney hasn't put in that effort in the market. It just treats it as a revenue stream. India is a deeply local, like I said it for uh, films, 90% box office from Indian films. It's a deeply local market. You need local management, local thinking, local programming. And many American media companies have done well here. Warner, Sony, Paramount. Why does Disney have this trouble for 30 years? Okay, and if you were to look in the near future, which is maybe the rest of this financial year, how are things looking in a very broader sense? I mean, apart from these two or three factors that we spoke of, what's your prognosis for the media and entertainment industry? I haven't seen the advertising numbers because we are extremely ad dependent as a as a sector. So I'm I'm a little cherry about making any predictions. But generally, I think the the report that I'm getting from people is that business is good, business is good. Macro issues remain the same: low per unit monetization, low margins, high volumes, which is the truth about the Indian media business. If television and if films hold, then I think we are in for a decent year. If television and films, which are the you know, largest sectors. Digital, I'm saying that there's a lot of overlap between television, digital and film. A Google and a Meta will always do well. They are the largest portion of the digital pie. If they hold, then I think we are okay. Like Television fell marginally last year, so that worries me a little. But otherwise, we should have a decent year. Okay, Vanita. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. And here's a great explanation for artificial intelligence. One of the best explanations and definitions for AI I heard recently was thanks to Microsoft's Satya Nadella. There are of course no dearth of good explanations, including on YouTube and in the podcast world, but I did feel that Nadella put it together, the front end and the back end more specifically, in a way that helps us understand why AI is so powerful and what we could do with it, at least potentially. Narela was speaking at Inspire, a Microsoft partner conference last week, where he said that we were in the midst of a massive platform shift with the new generation of AI. 
The company also unveiled some new products like Bing Chat Enterprise, a version of the chatbot built into Microsoft 365, which can work within enterprises or companies. And going by what MS says or Microsoft says, not expose your company's data to an outside system, which you would have to do today when you log into OpenAI or ChatGPT. Microsoft also unveiled pricing for many of these products. Here's what Nadella said at Inspire while talking about AI. There's no question we are in the midst of a massive platform shift with the new generation of AI that's going to transform pretty much every sector, or every category of computing. Perhaps a good place to start is to sort of ground ourselves in what is that shift? What is the characteristics of the shift that we all as an ecosystem need to both understand and deeply innovate on top of? There are two dimensions to it. The first dimension is around the user interface. Now, if you think about the arc of computing, the last 70 plus years has been one constant pursuit to create human computer interfaces that are more intuitive, that are more natural, right? Everything that we did, I grew up through the graphical user interface. Uh, the mouse and the keyboard were very revolutionary when they came out, changed how we sort of remediated computer-human interaction. Uh, obviously, multi-touch on the phone uh, was another massive shift. Uh, but we now have arrived, I would say, at that next logical but big leap, which is natural language. To be able to have natural language as the interface we have with computers is being the pursuit, uh, and we get to exercise that across every application we build, every interface we build. The second piece is around information management, right? The entire history of computing has been about digitizing people, places, things, and making sense of them. That's really essentially what we've done. Information management, as Bill used to always say, is the only category that actually exists, which is you really digitize the world and try to reason and understand the world. In that context, we now have a new superpower. We have a reasoning engine that allows us to start with a draft for any activity we start, you know, want to complete, any task we want to complete. We have a reasoning engine that gives us predictive capability. We have a reasoning engine that will give us more insights. That's the two shifts. When we talk about AI, you can distill it into a more natural interface using natural language, a reasoning engine that works on top of all your data, giving you more power. Those are the two things that we should keep in mind and ground ourselves. And speaking of that, it, every category, right? In our parlance, we talk about solution areas. Judson's going to come talk about every room of the house being remodeled by AI. And that's what is going to happen whether it's work, whether it's business process and business applications, whether it's security, whether it's software development, both low-code, no-code, and professional development. Every software category, as we know of it, is fundamentally going to be transformed by these two changes in the platform. Well, that's it from me for today. My deepest thank yous for listening in and making us rank consistently in the top 100 podcasts across India, across genres. 
now for many, many weeks. Thank you and have a great day ahead. Do reach out to us on govindraj at thecore.in and do connect with us on LinkedIn or X. No kidding, Twitter is now X. Bye for now. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.